This is a CBC podcast. Let me let me be very clear. I, I said it. In, so let me let me let me say let me say this because I can only speak for me. I am the person that's in front of you right now. I deeply apologize personally. I stood and I applauded somebody who is completely contrary to my values. That was made me feel disgusting. Okay, I felt awful and terrible after that. The revelation that parliamentarians had given a standing ovation to a man who fought with the Nazis was a gut punch, painful on a human level, as Liberal MP Mark Holland just described. And on the international stage, an embarrassing error. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we'll look at whether this really was, as has been claimed, the worst diplomatic blunder in Canada's history. Then our panel will weigh in on where this leaves Parliament and the Prime Minister. Also, the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services joins us to talk about when clean drinking water will be a reality for all First Nations. And she'll offer some very personal reflections on what she's learned about reconciliation. But first, the standing ovations that Canada has come to deeply regret. The House is now in session. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. Parliament was consumed by an uproar. The visit by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been overshadowed by one 98-year-old guest in the Speaker's Gallery. He was introduced to everyone present as a Ukrainian veteran, described as a hero. And then it came to light he'd fought under command of the Nazis. The anger and sadness that revelation has prompted was visceral for many MPs, including Conservative Melissa Lantzman and Liberal House Leader Karina Gould. Today, I'm going to address what happened in this place last Friday, a full-blown international embarrassment in our parliament and for our country. A Nazi invited to this house, welcomed uh, and celebrated as a hero. And I will say what nobody has said. Nobody from the government has said, this man is not a hero, he is a monster, and he had no business being here. As a parliamentarian, as a Canadian of Jewish origin, as a descendant of Holocaust survivors whose majority of her family walked in to Auschwitz-Birkenau, and only my grandfather and his brother walked out, that I think this hurt all of us in Parliament. And I'll say that personally, I feel particularly hurt. It also sparked Russian propaganda, part of a long history of the West supporting Nazis, they claimed. The debacle ultimately forced Anthony Rota to resign as Speaker and prompted that apology on behalf of Parliament by the Prime Minister. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says it's an unprecedented screw-up. The Prime Minister is now responsible for the biggest single diplomatic embarrassment in Canadian history. Is Polyev right about the scale of this mistake? We asked some experts. Marcus Kolgott monitors Russian disinformation in his role with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. I don't think I've ever witnessed anything quite like what we saw on Friday and what we've seen over the for the over the past number of days it's it's truly mo- remarkable i've never seen the sort of frenzy that uh, russian propagandists have gone into over the past number of days exploiting this situation 
uh, to try and intensify the already damaging effects that it's having has had on our reputation abroad, uh, but also the the divisions that this could potentially cause within our own society. I haven't seen anything quite like it, but I've certainly seen equally embarrassing incidents happen. And Janice Stein has seen a thing or two in her time watching Canadian politics. She's the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. So where does this rank in terms of diplomatic embarrassments? For something comparable, Stein points to 1997, when Israeli agents were found carrying Canadian passports after they had tried and failed to assassinate a Hamas leader. After the forensic examinations, it's very clear that the passports that were used were total counterfeits and manufacturers. It was embarrassing because it was a fraudulent Canadian passport and what came out was that there was a black market in Canadian passports and we had not secured our passports adequately. There are a number of incidents, some of them just count as uh, boo-boos, Historian Robert Bothwell points to one international faux pas that had a major fallout in Canada, although it wasn't committed by a Canadian. It is the famous, or perhaps infamous, 1967 speech by French President Charles de Gaulle while on an official visit to Quebec. De Gaulle gave a speech, a very passionate speech. Vive Montréal! Vive le Québec! Vive Montréal! Vive le Québec! Vive le Québec libre! Vive le Québec libre! And, you know, this is the slogan of the separatists. And they just go nuts. And it is taken as an endorsement by de Gaulle of Quebec separatism. When it comes to actions by a Canadian, Bothwell says it's also important to consider the real-world consequences of sloppiness or mistakes. Take an example from 1935. A Canadian diplomat promised strong sanctions against fascist Italy, which had invaded Ethiopia. Back in Ottawa, uh, the government had not authorized those, and it contributed to the collapse of sanctions against Italy. Italy uh, conquered Ethiopia. So, I mean, you can say that this is one where dysfunction on the Canadian side, contradiction on the Canadian side, made Canada um, an international, not laughingstock because it was too serious for that, but it certainly didn't contribute to our standing or prestige in the international arena. While it's hard to be definitive about what ranks as worst, Stein emphasizes the most important part is how you manage when things go wrong. She points to John F. Kennedy's reaction during the Cuban Missile Crisis when a spy plane mistakenly strayed into Soviet territory and nearly sparked a war. You know, John F. Kennedy had a great expression. And there's always some son of a bitch who doesn't get the word. In other words, stuff happens. And so it's how you deal with it that matters. It's not the stuff happening. Had the speaker not resigned... And Prime Minister not apologized, I think it would be a very different story. Kolga notes that even with an apology, the Yaroslav Hunka incident has led to some consequences Canada may not be able to control. It is embarrassing for the Canadian government, but I think this is something that will 
you know, it will go away relatively quickly when it comes to the international media. But uh, when it comes to Russian state media and Russian propagandists, they are going to continue using this. They will use it for the coming uh, weeks, months, and probably years. They will exploit it for its potential to divide Canadians and such. And this is something that I think that we all need to be aware of in order to, you know, number one, question those, those sorts of narratives when we see them and, and reject them for what they are. We did request Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland to talk about the consequences of this gaffe for Canada. We also reached out to the Ukrainian embassy for their reaction. No one was available for an interview. So we're going to dig into this with two political watchers who don't have to be diplomatic. <laughs> Podcaster and author Paul Wells and Toronto Star's Susan Delacourt. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So Susan, is this the biggest diplomatic embarrassment in Canadian history? So is it the biggest diplomatic mistake ever? If we measure it by the damage done to Canada-Ukraine relations, no, it's not. Is it a domestic problem for the hurt it's caused here? Is it a, a colossal embarrassment? Yes. I think it may be one of the biggest things, <laughs> embarrassments I've seen in the House of Commons. Paul, quick take from you on that. In the spirit of the question, I did come up with a bigger diplomatic embarrassment. In 1945, <laughs> Igor had defected from the Russian embassy, the Soviet embassy and spent two days wandering around Ottawa trying to launch the Cold War and nobody wanted to listen to him. And even when he finally convinced Louis Saint Laurent, the foreign minister at the time, that this was serious, the King government didn't tell any Canadians what had been going on at an embassy in their capital city until a talk radio host in the United States started to blab about it. To me, that's very tough to beat uh, as a, a diplomatic embarrassment. But as the guys at the Ringer podcast say, this new uh, embarrassment is very much in the conversation. It's going to get raised every time the question comes up. Now, Justin Trudeau has apologized on behalf of everyone who was in the House that day. Paul, do you think that he has taken the appropriate amount of responsibility here? Before he apologized, I was on the record saying that I hoped he would. You know, whether it is precisely calibrated to the outrage, I'll leave it for other people to decide. But I'm glad that he uh, spoke for Canada because distracted audiences around the world will not have been interested in parsing exactly the level of responsibility. They will have said Canada looks awful and it's to the prime minister to take some of that hurt away. Susan, we heard from the Conservatives, uh, particularly earlier in the week, that they would not accept a sort of collectivizing mm -hmm. of the responsibility. So is it appropriate? I mean, can the can the Prime Minister really speak for, for all of the House? Is that his role? Uh, the Prime Minister can certainly speak for Canada, and the Conservatives themselves have been saying that. He has to take the blame for Canada. So you can't say that and then say you, we're not collectivizing this. On this one, I actually think it's Yves-Francois Blanchet, bloc leader, who has had the most interesting questions to ask in the House, including his own admission of culpability in this, uh, saying to the Prime Minister, when you talk to Zelensky, will you tell him I am sorry too? And the Conservatives saying that they won't apologize for it, they're playing a risky game with that, I think. I, I would like to see them saying they're sorry for what happened as well and turning this less into a game, you know, and I think I've been saying all week that the aftermath of this has not returned any honour to the House, that if Zelensky had been watching the debate in the House this week, it would have been embarrassing. 
I will say, I mean, you raise how Zelensky might react to this. And one of the things that's been so striking for me watching all of this, I mean, I was in the gallery when Zelensky gave his speech and he talked about Canada as this kind of moral beacon in the world, always on the bright side of history. And even at that moment, I think, I mean, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, yeah. we can say that that has not always been true. But this incident, not just the presence of Yaroslav Hunka, but what it has reminded us about people who fought with the Nazis and have come to lead peaceful lives in this country is a reminder that we really aren't always on the, the bright side of history, Paul. I do want you, though, to, to pick up on what Susan was saying about how the Conservatives have responded to this. They have amped up rhetoric, certainly. You know, they kept saying Justin Trudeau is hiding at his cottage for three days. Now, he didn't appear at question period for two days, but during that time, he was out doing um, somewhat public events, right? Meeting with the Premier of British yeah. Columbia. He did an event in Toronto. What do you make of how they are treating this incident? So the Conservatives have run roughshod over decorum this week. Maybe I can help folks understand why they might want to do that. The first thing is that Anthony Rota gave them a stick, and they're going to use it to beat Justin Trudeau, because Pierre Polyev himself frequently gets accused of finding himself in public in photo ops with disreputable characters of one sort or another. And he now gets to say, A, I didn't know, B, Justin Trudeau was, you know, brought an actual Nazi in with us. And so it provides an extraordinary, I said it was a stick, now I'm going to say it's a shield mm -hmm. against that kind of accusations. Just as the Prime Minister's history of wearing blackface is a defense against assorted accusations of racism. It sometimes seems that the only act of racism in Canada's recent history that outrages Pierre Poiliev are the things that Justin Trudeau did. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we are going to be hearing about Mr. Hunka low unto the end of days every time Pierre Polyev has to say that the other guys did something worse. And why does he do that? Because only one conservative has beaten a liberal in a national election in the last 30 years. It was Stephen Harper. Preston Manning couldn't do it. Kim Campbell couldn't do it. Stockwell Day, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole. If things go normally, the conservative leader loses and Pierre Polyev does not want things to go normally and he will not pause for one second to consider questions of decorum as he tries to avoid being the, what, sixth conservative leader to lose to a liberal in the last 30 years? Very interesting analysis. Uh, Susan, I want to go a bit more big picture here and, and talk about the international picture, because this has been, I mean, I'm just shaking my head looking at you here, <laughs> the, the couple of weeks that we've had. Not only this strange, sad incident involving Yaroslav Hunka, but also this very separate incident where the Prime Minister stood up in the House of Commons and said that the Indian government uh, was allegedly involved in the killing of a Canadian citizen in this country. What can we say about the state of Canada's international reputation right now? Well, I don't want to say precarious, but I, I think the timing of the two incidents together People who don't want to like this government or people who worry about this government are going to see the connection with is, do you guys have your act together? You know, that's basically that's what it comes down to. How can we trust the prime minister, what he's saying on India and, and what he knows about India if this is a government, as the conservatives are alleging, that didn't know there was a Nazi in the house? You know, that that's a really unfair link to make between the two. But, you know, life's not fair and the, that connection will be made. So... I've been thinking about this um, incident, horrible that it is this week, as a being a little bit like the foreign interference debate of the winter and spring, in that, I'm sorry to say this for everybody who was following it very closely, it was not a big draw, reader-wise, outside the Ottawa bubble. 
the Conservatives are having had a lot of fun with it. It did not help them by elections. Mr. Polyev only started going up in the polls when he walked away from foreign interference and started talking about things at home. I think that what the Conservatives have forgotten, I think, over the summer is that that was not a successful vote-getting mechanism to keep this up this this attack dog posture in the house and i think they may want to look at, at what it's doing to them because it may be that this is a very ottawa story it makes everybody look bad but it doesn't help anybody but beyond beyond what's happening with canadian voters i'm curious what you think of canada in the world at this time is this just an aberration or are we uh you know we're certainly an international story to watch but not in a way that canadians would like paul this is another payback for a sort of a chronic situation in Canadian politics, which is that foreign policy actually is usually kind of optional in Canadian politics. We don't have a lot of existential threats. We have a bunch of ocean on most uh, sides of the country and, and to the south we have, even though we find the Americans annoying, as congenial a neighbor as any country in the world has ever had. And so we forget foreign policy and it keeps coming up to snap us on the ass. And... My general advice to apparently a lot of people who are involved in politics listen to your show, Catherine. (laughs) Um, I would say the next festive greeting in the House of Commons by a friendly ally should not be taken as a vacation from the serious work of life in this dangerous world. I am old enough to remember when Václav Havel, when he was president of the Czech Republic, came to the House of Commons. He was greeted with all the sort of dishwatery, cliches that we reserve for people we claim to like. And he was there while NATO was bombing Serbia. And in his laborious English, he provided a closely argued manifesto for this grave action that was being undertaken by himself and his fellow leaders. And I have never forgotten it. Days like this are not a vacation from the world. They're a chance for us to get into the world and to take that responsibility seriously. Okay, so that is Canada and the world. Returning to the domestic picture, Susan, we have to find a new speaker now. Mm -hmm. What are you expecting as we see that next step of all of this? So please don't take this as an endorsement, as they say on social media. But I thought one of the most powerful, effective scrums this week was Chris Dantremont. The current deputy speaker who's thrown his hat in the ring. So... He scrummed going into Conservative Caucus, knowing that he's a very likely contender to be the next speaker, and talked about what the speaker's challenge is. And he was talking about it, I think, very well, uh, or very eloquently, as a challenge of, of climate and toxic partisanship. And if that's the lesson that's to be learned from this, then I think I, w- I would recommend everybody read what Chris Dantremont said about what the challenge of the next speaker is. Paul? I have no opinion on who should be the next speaker. And particularly, I don't much care whether it belongs to the governing party or another party. I don't think that matters much. I think the next speaker should not view their role as one of continuity, but understand that we are far past time for some serious renovation work. The House of Commons is a major reputation (laughs) fixer-upper. And instead of trying to uh, decide who looks worse among the various parties, they should all understand, but certainly the speaker should understand, that too many Canadians view what goes on in that house with pure contempt, and it's time to stop letting it slide. Well, here, here. <laughs> thump, thump, thump. thump. <laughs> Thank you both so much for your insights today. Thanks. Thank you. It's fun. Paul Wells and Susan Delacorte. 
Lots more coming up on the House podcast. On the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we speak to the Minister of Indigenous Services about when all First Nations communities will finally have clean drinking water and what she has learned about the meaning of reconciliation. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. You can send us an email. The address is thehouse at cbc.ca. That Indigenous women, girls and two-spirited people are not being valued. Earlier this month, protesters gathered on Parliament Hill here in Ottawa and on the steps of the Manitoba Legislature. They were demanding a search for the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron. Police believe the two First Nations women are the victims of a suspected serial killer and that they are buried in a Winnipeg landfill. As Manitobans head to the polls on Tuesday, the question of whether to search the waste facility has turned into a wedge issue for one party's election campaign. The CBC's Bartley Kivas brings us this story from Winnipeg. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. So I'm Bernadette. We've met before. Bernadette Smith is knocking on doors in Point Douglas, one of the oldest residential neighborhoods in Winnipeg. Polls are open today, advanced polls, and just saying how you're feeling about voting. Um, it is on my to-do list. Smith is a two-term incumbent for Manitoba's NDP. Point Douglas is a stronghold for her party, and many people in her constituency know her story. How she grew up in Winnipeg's North End, how she's proud of her Anishinaabe and Métis heritage, and how her sister, Claudette Osborne, is missing. Like, my sister's been missing for 15 years. Like, she, she could be in that landfill. Yeah, it hurts my heart. We don't know where she is. It's... And I've never been able to go there. Smith entered politics to become a voice for the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women. She's had to use that voice more often than she'd like. Today I'm here to publicly report three additional murders Jeremy Skibicki has been charged with. In December, the the Winnipeg Police Service charged a suspected serial killer with the murders of four Indigenous women and said they believe the remains of two of those women, Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, lie below 60,000 tons of waste in the Prairie Green landfill north of Winnipeg. This revelation led to 10 months of talks involving the families of the missing women, First Nations leaders, and all three levels of government about a landfill search that could cost up to $180 million. In July, with an election campaign looming, Manitoba Premier and Progressive Conservative leader Heather Stephenson made a decision not to search. This is not about funding. This is about the safety, and it was in the report itself. This is about the safety of those individuals who would be conducting the search. This decision proved heartbreaking for the families of the missing women. But on the election campaign trail, neither the PCs nor NDP initially wanted to bring up the landfill search. And not just that. Neither party's been saying much at all about Indigenous issues in a province where nearly a fifth of the population is First Nations, Métis, or Inuit. That includes the NDP, whose leader, Wabkanoo, comes from an Anishinaabe community in northwestern Ontario and could become the first First Nations premier of a Canadian province. Kelly Saunders, a political scientist at the University of Brandon, says talking about indigeneity can be delicate for Indigenous politicians. You know, I can understand why a party, specifically a First Nations leader, would want to 
walk delicately around some of those pressures. It's not like he would be denying his indigeneity. Obviously, that's an important part of who he is and and his lived experience and how he looks at the world and issues. But it would be a challenging thing because you, you want to downplay it, and I think you see that in some of his messaging, right? I am going to be a premier for all Manitobans. But you don't want to put that out front and center because of the ways in which indigeneity and Indigenous issues, reconciliation, has really been weaponized in a lot of quarters. PC attack ads during the campaign draw attention to assault and drunk driving charges made against Canoe when he was a young adult, a move Canoe has described as a thinly veiled reference to his indigeneity. He addressed this back in August, before the start of the formal campaign, in a speech to supporters at Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg. Race is part of the landscape when it comes to public safety in Manitoba. That means Indigenous people come up in our conversations about crime in this province. And we all know the stats about the overrepresentation in jails and in the courts. But there is something that is lost in the conversation my opponents want to have about public safety in Manitoba. And it's a simple truth. Far too often in our province, Indigenous people are the victims of crime. And so do you want to know who wants real action and not rhetoric when it comes to crime and public safety in Manitoba? Indigenous people. Paul Thomas, Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba, describes that speech as a tactical move. It was meant to inoculate him against his past as what the PCs portray as an angry Indigenous man, and it was a speech he had to give to get it out of the way and move on to talk about issues. And and even to up to this, as close as we are now to the election, he's still not coming out full force and saying, I'll be a Premier who will be so responsive to Indigenous concerns, Indigenous people. Canoe has a position on the landfill search. He's promised to try, in good faith, to do something on behalf of the victims' families. Now, trailing in the polls, the PCs are attempting to use that stance against the NDP. At a televised leaders' debate, Stephenson chose to use her first question to prod Canoe for his support for the landfill search. The feasibility study states that there are considerable risks, including asbestos and other toxic waste. Inhaling the fibers can cause cancer and other serious health issues. The report states, and I quote, there are considerable risks. Why are you willing to put $184 million in Manitoba workers at risk for a search without a guarantee? The PCs are trying to use this issue to divide us. And this is what it's been like throughout their time in office. Two days later, the Tories took out a full-page ad in the Winnipeg Free Press. Stand firm, says the ad, and below a photo of Stephenson, for health and safety reasons, the answer on the landfill dig just has to be no. The PC's decision to campaign for votes on their opposition to the landfill search has changed the thrust of this campaign, and some aren't happy. Kyra Wilson is the chief of Long Plain First Nation, west of Winnipeg, the home community for missing women, Mercedes Myron and Morgan Harris. Why do the Conservatives feel the need to use, you know, the, the family's pain and, and the loss and the grief to convey any type of messaging? It's very condescending uh, towards 
you know, all the work that we're trying to do to bring these women home. You know, right now we have two human beings that are laying in a landfill and we just want to bring them home. And uh, the fact that, you know, you have Heather Stephenson, who's supposed to be a leader, acting in this way is just completely disgusting. And, and I feel and I feel bad for anyone running in that party. And I don't think that it's going to fare too well with a lot of people that have seen these ads. The ad also inspired a protest outside Stephenson's constituency office in Winnipeg, attended by Mercedes Myron's sister, Jordan Myron. These are my sister's remains in a landfill. It's hard enough that I have to stand in front of these cameras and grieve while fighting to get her home. I don't need stuff added on to uh, what I'm fighting for. The day after the ad came out, progressive conservative candidate Kevin Klein, the incumbent in West Winnipeg's Kirkville Park, said he didn't see the ad. Sorry, where was the ad? Oh, I don't read the free press. Klein suggested the Tories aren't the ones bringing up the landfill. It's an issue that's being talked about by the other political parties, and I believe that our Premier and our PC team wanted to make sure that we were being clear and transparent with all Manitobans. So I would believe that we put the, that message out. I'm sure there will be a, a message another day, but the message had to be put out there where we stand. We're not wavering on that. We believe that we made the right decision. The entire PC caucus supports our Premier, Heather Stephenson, on the decision made. Also after the ad came out, the PCs put up billboards advertising their anti-landfill search stance. This inspired a new blockade of a different landfill, Brady Road, within the city of Winnipeg. Mary Agnes Welch, a pollster for Winnipeg's Probe Research, says the PCs have data suggesting the landfill search is an effective wedge issue. A poll conducted by her firm found Manitobans split on their support for a search. But the issue, she says, won't pull voters toward the PCs. I think there's a tiny number of voters who are going to choose to vote for Heather Stephenson because she said she won't search the landfill. But most voters are worried about, you know, home care and cost of living and crime in their neighborhood. And that landfill issue doesn't come up in our polling, for example. When you ask people what's the top issue in your community that you're thinking about in this campaign, almost nobody says search the landfill. Paul Thomas, the political scientist, says there's a logic to the PCs engaging in such a risky campaign tactic. That is, with the Tories behind in the polls, they're trying to motivate their base in seats they could still win. And I think in the back rooms of the PC party, they've, they've done their own private polling and focus groups. They know what messages are working and not working. And I think they're trying to defend uh, their strongholds across the province, particularly what will be left of those, those strongholds in Winnipeg, because there are far more swing seats inside the, the city of Winnipeg than beyond Winnipeg. And so that, I think, is part of it. And some campaign managers just know that they have to get nasty with their messaging. It has to be hard-hitting at this late stage to grab voters' attention. Hi. Who are you? I'm Bernadette. Who are you? Hi, Paisley. Back in Point Douglas, NDP candidate Bernadette Smith wonders, at what cost? I always say to everyone that if it was your loved one, would you not want someone looking for you? And would you want your loved one left there? You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what color we are. 
we all bleed red. And I don't think that we should be using that to divide us. You know, we're Manitobans. We should be coming together. And we should be supporting one another. For The House, I'm Bartley Kivas in Winnipeg. The Manitoba election is on Tuesday. CBC News Network will have a live election special. It's also streaming on CBC Gem and the CBC News app. Today, Saturday the 30th, is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Here on The House, we wanted to take a close look at how far the federal government was getting with some of its goals. And there's one that stands out with a finish line that's only a few years away, closing the infrastructure gap by 2030. To better understand what that gap is and what fixing it might entail, we called up Ernie Daniels. He's president and CEO of the First Nations Finance Authority. They are a central borrowing agency for First Nations governments across the country. Ernie Daniels, welcome to the House. Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me today. Now, when we talk about the infrastructure gap, what are we really talking about? We're talking about everything. Everything that affects First Nations well-being, First Nations economic development, First Nations way of making a living and uh, really contributing to the economy. So it's the health of our children. It's the well-being of our elders, the taking care of our elders in a, in a meaningful way. It's a real bad situation when we don't have uh, the infrastructure that we needed to have in place that regular Canadians enjoy right now. So we're talking about not just housing, but roads, hospitals? Yes, we are talking about schools. We're talking about infrastructure for economic development. We're, we're talking about uh, drinking water. And, you know, Canada is going to stand to benefit if we have healthy people in, in our economy. And I think we can be a major contributor to this economy. The federal government has set this goal of eliminating that infrastructure gap by 2030. Is that achievable given the way that things are going right now? I don't think so. <clears throat> I don't think it is. Just, you know, considering the gap is anywhere from $30 billion to $350 billion. If we're, we're in 2020, at almost at the end of 2023. That leaves, what, six years left? <clears throat> That's not a lot to do 300 or $60 billion or 80 or $100 billion closing the gap. And when, when you think about it, if the government, for example, did decide to uh, fund... $350 billion in infrastructure. What is that going to do to the industry, the construction industry? What is it going to do to supply? You know, it's just, it's not possible to do that. It needs to be done in a measured way. So what is the best case scenario then? I mean, if we look at the premise here, as you said earlier, that First Nations communities are lacking some basic things that other parts of Canada have, what is the best case scenario in your mind for fixing that? What's the fastest it could be done? One of the solutions that I've been advocating for a number of years is a concept that we call monetization. So monetization is really uh, leveraging uh, annual government transfers into the capital markets and to raise the money you need to today with payments over time, much the same way as a mortgage. It helps the government with their budgets so that they're not having one big uh, expenditure of I don't know how many billions of dollars, and, and just uh, paying annual amounts over time, over 10, 15, 20 years, whatever term they choose. Even in a best-case scenario where the government shows more flexibility, do you think that it is still realistic to say that this gap could be eliminated by 2030? Nope. 
I, I don't think it will. I think it's a longer period of time. It's maybe 10 years from now that we'll get to maybe half, maybe three quarters of, of the way to closing the gap. But, but I think the main thing is to start and make the effort to do that in a meaningful way. And, and when I say meaningful, I mean like uh, not at $2 billion a year over a five, six-year period. It needs to be continual because our populations are growing. There needs to be a really long-term plan that's going to survive governments because <clears throat> governments are really short-term. They try to do everything within that term, but it's got to be able to go beyond that. And I think that's one of the challenges that we face uh, is how we're going to keep this going. How does getting rid of this gap, fixing it, how does it fit into reconciliation? Well, I think it's the major major ingredient in the reconciliation. Because, you know, for far too long, government has really not managed this file very well in, in terms of infrastructure and making sure we have adequate infrastructure. And I firmly believe that uh, infrastructure is a precursor to uh, positive economic development. And so when that happens, it results in a host of really uh, positive things. Uh, for example, employment, business uh, development, uh, ownership and innovation. It, it's really, for me, a, a huge positive impact to the economy. Like, uh, And all of Canadians will benefit from the closing of this gap because <clears throat> First Nations don't have all the services, all the supplies, all everything else to, that's needed to bring some infrastructure project into uh, fruition and, and operating. So it's in the best interest of Canada to do this for the Canadian economy. Ernie Daniels, thank you for your time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Ernie Daniels is president and CEO of the First Nations Finance Authority. To talk about fixing the infrastructure gap and reconciliation more broadly, Patty Haidu is the Minister of Indigenous Services. Minister Haidu, welcome back to the House. Great to be here. I want to start with what we just heard from Ernie Daniels. He says there is no way that you're going to meet your 2030 goal of getting rid of this gap, that it would take a decade to get, say, half of this problem fixed. Is your pledge here unrealistic? Well, I think it's important to have stretch goals. And when I think about the commitment to and boil water advisories, which, as you know, we have not completed yet, the benefit of having an ambitious goal is that there's uh, ambitious inputs to close that goal. So... Look, we remain committed to closing the infrastructure gap. We've already invested $17 billion across uh, the country, and that's on infrastructure projects that like roads and bridges and water and homes and schools and community centres. But I agree that the gap continues to be large, and I see it every time I visit a community. You say stretch goal, but is what you're saying that 2030 is probably not going to be a reality given the size of the gap? You know, I can't predict that because it depends on the kinds of investments and innovations that we see. And what I will say is, you know, I was in Show Lake 40 last summer. It was such an amazing visit. I traveled on what Show Lake is calling Freedom Road. It's the road that connects the community um, for the first time by land to Manitoba to Winnipeg. 
and community members are starting to come back because they're starting to see the community functioning restored. I saw a number of new homes. Uh, the chief was very clear that more is required. But when you think about someplace like Shoal Lake and the staging that has to go on, you know, the road facilitated the transportation of infrastructure materials in a way that was far more cost effective. So the community mm-hmm. could actually get the goods they needed to build the things. And then I think about communities that are air access only and how the window is so small to be able to bring infrastructure materials over ice roads, for example. Other than that, it has to be flown in. These are all the kinds of logistics that go on every single day in these communities. They are examples, and I I think it's important to look at the different pieces of it. But when we zoom out to the scope of this, the study done by the AFN and Indigenous Services Canada pegs the gap at nearly $350 billion dollars. Is the suggestion, I mean, you talked about $17 billion a few moments ago, is the suggestion that the government will spend $350 billion on this before 2030? I think what we're going to need to see is regular and ongoing investments. And I think... Much bigger than what you're making right now. I would say that no government is going to be able to book $350 billion and hold it in a bucket for future projects. But I think what we need all of us as Canadians to continue to do is to push for realistic investments that can be spent year over year by communities as they build up from a century or more of of neglect and, I would say, discriminatory funding. Another important part of the conversation around infrastructure is obviously drinking water. When your government was first elected, you pledged to end all long-term drinking water advisories on First Nations by March of 2021. We know that that goal was not met. You've recently said you hope it can be done by 2025. Hope. How firm is the commitment to 2025? Well, I think the commitment is quite firm. And we have, I've said often that Canadians can follow along. Indigenous Services Canada has a webpage that will show you in detail where Mm -hmm. each project is at because Canadians are very interested in clean drinking water for First Nations, which is fantastic. As you've pointed out, uh, we've made huge progress. In fact, more than 96% of First Nations now have clean drinking water, and we are committed to finishing that uh, work to ensure that the remaining 4% also have access. The majority of communities with boil water advisories have construction projects underway. Some of them are difficult construction projects. For example, into Tusquiac, the plan is to connect the community by a 40-kilometer long water pipeline to the closest clean lake because the Tatasquik Lake has been so irrevocably poisoned by mining and uh, Manitoba hydroactivity that that lake is no longer usable. So, so let me ask you this. When the Liberal Party made that pledge in the 2015 election, what was it that you did not understand about how hard this was going to be? Well, I think that oftentimes people think the only barrier is money. Money is a huge barrier, absolutely. And fiscal commitment is a huge part of solving those challenges. But each community is unique, and each community has its own specific infrastructure challenges, and each community has its own timeline. You know, there are uh, several boil water advisories that are currently waiting for the chief and council to declare the lift over. And most Canadians don't know that it isn't Ottawa that decides when the water is clean. It's the community that decides And often chiefs and councils are responding to the fears of their community members because community members may have never had clean water. And until they're confident that the lift can be um, 
trusted by their community, they may not be in a position yet to approve that lift. And you can see actually on the website, on the tracker, which communities are waiting for lifts from by chief and council. I think that we've learned a lot as a government in terms of how to work in partnership with communities. Oftentimes solutions in the past have been extremely colonial. You know, you will select this kind of water treatment plant. You will select this kind of infrastructure. These are the limits. We will, uh, our engineers will be the final say. We're learning how to work more collaboratively with communities on how we can support their vision for moving forward. We also heard in the show about the Manitoba election and the fact that the debate about whether or not to search a landfill for the remains of two First Nations women has become an election issue. In, in Manitoba. PC leader Heather Stephenson even took out a full-page ad which mentioned that she would, quote, stand firm on not searching the landfill for health and safety reasons. What do you think of that? I thought a lot about this, actually. Um, I saw my colleague, Minister Miller's comments. Uh, certainly, uh, the federal government, as you know, funded the feasibility study. Has he's, ma- he's called this heartless. And cruel. He's, yes. And I would agree with him. I would say using families as a political wedge is the lowest form of politics that I can actually imagine. I mean, these are real people with real trauma and real loss. I can't imagine what it feels like to be a member of that family waking up to um, full page uh, ads and billboards that are specifically talking about my loved ones. So what I'll say is that Canada remains uh, willing to be a partner in the uh, work to help those families come to peace. Okay, I, and there's I, I just an wanna, empty seat at the table right now, and that's Manitoba. But I just want to really understand what the federal government's position is here, because I, I hear a lot of language that seems like a sort of door opening. But mm-hmm. are you saying that unequivocally, You believe, the federal government believes, that the landfill search should go ahead. I think what the government is saying is that we will work with Manitoba and the city on the direction that the province and and the city take. We don't have jurisdiction in that area. I'm I'm not asking about whether you are permitting it. I'm asking whether you can be unequivocal about saying it should happen. That's what you believe. If, If you had a willing partner locally, this absolutely should happen. Health and safety issues can be dealt with. I am saying that the feasibility study did give a direction about how to do it. It's not going to be easy, but I think that the willingness of the government to fund the feasibility study is an indication that the government is, the federal government is willing to be a partner to the province and the municipality. The families of the women whose bodies are missing, they came out of a meeting with your counterpart, uh, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Gary Anandasangri, and said the federal government had not agreed to help and that according to um, daughter Cambria Harris, quote, reconciliation is dead. How do you respond to that? I um, think relationships with um, oppressed people like Indigenous people in a colonial country like Canada are extremely fragile. And I think that every Every person, uh, every Indigenous person carries the trauma of that colonization. And so I think it's really important when we're engaging with Indigenous people that we understand that. And uh, so uh, I have compassion for, uh, for the families that feel so profoundly devastated and lost um, right now. In closing, I want to ask you about reconciliation writ large. Since you have taken on this job, what is one of the most important things that you've come to learn about reconciliation? Hmm. That's a really good question. 
Well, two things, really. One, and I get emotional when I talk about this, but Canadians in Canada lost a huge opportunity when we decided to go down this path of control and inequity. Um, there was a different path that Indigenous people were proposing at the time of contact and through the treaty creation, which was one of mutual respect and learning. And I think about, for example, in the environment and the challenges we're seeing with the environment and the lessons that Indigenous people have taught me, not just in this job, but previously in my relationships at home, that we're part of our ecosystem, that we're not dominant over our ecosystem, that the... We owe a duty of care and respect to the animals and the land and the water. So that always is a very emotional space. But secondly, that reconciliation, it, of course it happens between country and nation, but it also has to happen between people. That relationships are, um, like I said, they're fragile. There's a huge trust deficit and that each of us as Canadians owe it to ourselves and to Indigenous people to understand a bit more about the formation of this country, the violence that underpins the land that we live on, and the trauma that so many Indigenous people continue to live with as a result of the, the abuse that they've faced through generations. And so that relationship is ongoing. Reconciliation is not a destination. It's not a point in time where we'll all say, look, we're, we're here. It's a... Uh, it's a recommitment every step of the way to um, learning how to be together in a kinder, more compassionate, and more equitable way. Minister Patty Haidu, thank you for your time today. Thanks for a great chat. Okay, that is it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Paz Lang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. Thanks this week to Anna Lazowski of the Audio Doc Unit. I am Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.